welcome to Grow the Pie, the podcast where we ask the tough questions for responsible business. I'm Tom Gosling, Executive Fellow in the Centre for Corporate Governance at London Business School, and I'm with Alex Edmonds, Professor of Finance at London Business School and author of Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. Uh, Great to be with you again, Alex. Thanks, Tom, and you too. So in the next few episodes, we're going to dig into a few particularly controversial issues in slightly more detail to see what the evidence says about what grows the pie. Today, we're going to discuss share buybacks and dividends. And there are a couple of um, strange sort of anomalies here. So uh, buybacks on the whole are viewed by many commentators as being a a bad thing that uh, does nothing other than fill the pockets of fat cats, whereas dividends are good and pay pensions. On the other hand, buybacks can be flexible. They can move up or down, and there's no particular drama if there isn't a buyback in a particular year, whereas dividends appear to be completely fixed and companies get punished if they reduce their dividend at all. So we're going to explore some of these uh, anomalies and look at what the evidence has to say about them. But Alex, first of all, without wanting to patronise our listeners, perhaps you could just briefly explain what share buybacks and dividends are and the important aspects in how they're different. Sure. So both share buybacks and dividends are forms of shareholder payout. So they're a way of a company returning capital to shareholders. So why does a company want to do that to begin with? Well, if a company's generated a lot of cash from its um, selling goods and services, it should first undertake all profitable investment. And notice that a pie-growing company should undertake investment not just in tangible forms like machines and factories, but also intangible forms such as training your workers or reducing your carbon footprint. But after you've done that, spare cash, you should then pay it out to your shareholders, why it gives them a return and also allows them to invest that cash elsewhere. Now, there's three important differences between share buybacks and dividends. So one of them is that share buybacks valuation matters. So one concern is it might be that you're buying back shares when the price is already too high. So if share buybacks are to be properly executed, they should be undertaken when the stock price is low. The second difference, and perhaps one of the most controversial differences, is that a share buyback can increase the earnings per share of a company. So what is earnings per share? That is the net income or profit, otherwise known as bottom line, that a company makes, divided by the number of shares. Now, importantly, dividends, they come out of net income, so they come after the bottom line. So dividends don't affect earnings per share, which are calculated before dividends are paid out. However, because earnings per share is affected by the number of shares, there is the concern that you raised, Tom, that a buyback can be used to artificially boost earnings per share. So even without developing better products or cutting your costs, a CEO can increase her earnings per share by undertaking a buyback and achieve a bonus target. So just financial engineering. Exactly. So that's one of the the controversies is people think, well, having earnings per share targets is fine because you want the CEO to be more efficient and do some things such as innovation or cost cutting in order to achieve that. But this suggests that you can engage in manipulation in order to hit your target. And so that's why it's seen as something to line the pockets of CEOs. 
And the final difference is the flexibility which you mentioned. So if you pay a dividend, let's say of 50 pence per share last year, you are expected to continue to pay at least 50 pence per share this year. And if you don't, if you cut the dividend, your stock price plummets. And in contrast, with share buybacks, you can chop and change them. So you can buy back shares one year and then not do so the next year. And so this is a double-edged sword. So on the one hand, there are some investors who believe that buybacks are an unsafe and uncertain, unreliable way to return capital to them. So if they're a pension fund, they can't rely on buybacks. But on the other hand, if you're a company, you would much prefer to be returning capital in the form of buybacks. Why? Because there's none of this commitment. So it could be that last year you engaged in a huge buyback. This year, you don't have that much money because there's a pandemic, but you still want to keep paying your workers and so forth. And while you, it's difficult to cut the dividend, it's much easier to scrap the buyback. So that flexibility is, a, is actually a big advantage of uh, repurchases, particularly for a pie-growing company who wants to ensure that it takes all investment opportunities. Mm, and we'll, we'll come back to this flexibility point. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because the role of buybacks has grown quite a lot, hasn't it, over the last few decades? Indeed, I think they were pretty difficult to undertake in, in, in the US before the 1980s or so. And actually, then now the data now suggests that about half of cash returned to shareholders in the US is in the form of share buybacks, uh, much higher than in other territories, where in, in, in Europe, for example, it might typically be about a quarter of the returns of cash to shareholders go in share buybacks. Is there any obvious explanation for those big geographical differences? I can certainly talk about how things, why things change in the US. I think geographically it's difficult because there's so many other factors which, which are changing. But within the US, there was some regulation which made it difficult to undertake buybacks because this was seen as some stock price manipulation. But when that regulation got lifted, then indeed buybacks became more popular, as you say. And um, there's a famous paper by Gustavo Grulon and Ronnie McKayley, two, two economists, which is called the substitution hypothesis, which showed that total shareholder payout stayed the same, but it was just that dividends fell and buybacks went up. And why is this? It's arguably because of buybacks being more attractive due to their flexibility. And one might think that that flexibility is particularly important now for the 21st century firm, where there's a lot of uncertainty. It might be that there's a sudden um, increase in investment opportunities. So they really value that flexibility. So it's not so much that companies that used to be paying dividends stop them, because once you start, it's really difficult to stop. But it was that new companies would often not pay dividends even after they became profitable. For example, Amazon's been profitable for a while, but still doesn't pay a dividend. Okay, so let's dig into buybacks uh, a little bit more. And I mean, they're often the target of policymakers and politicians who seem to blame them for all manner of ills. Indeed, it wouldn't surprise me if there's some rumour that along with 5G, they've caused COVID-19. But the, the main issues that seem to get identified with share buybacks are this idea that it causes a, a sort of a short-term sugar high, in the words of uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren in the share price, that they crowd out investment, that they crowd out other stakeholders. So, for example, higher wages for workers. And as we've already touched on, you know, they use to manipulate executive pay. So let's, let's just break down into each of those four. On the face of it, th there's no obvious reason why a share buyback should cause a share price to increase because we're just taking cash that's inside the company and, and taking it outside the company and putting it in shareholders' hands. But, but what does the evidence show on this sort of sugar high question? 
Yeah, so this is important because there's been many claims, as you say, that the increase in the stock price is artificial. It's manipulation, as we discussed earlier, right? If you're to increase earnings per share by cutting your costs, that's something permanent. Whereas if you engage in a one-time buyback, that boosts it temporarily, but uh, it's going to reverse afterwards. But even though this claim is often made, it's often made without assessing the evidence. And here the evidence is actually really easy to look up. You can study what happens in the long term. And indeed, there was a seminal paper in 1995 which looked at what happens after a company announces a share buyback. Indeed, the stock price jumps in the short term. And in the long term, over the next four years, it continues to rise by 12%. So that's actually in contradiction with these common allegations is that the stock price rises in the short term, but it continues to rise in the long term. Now, one concern with that was that was a paper written in 1995. So it was based on data in the 1980s. And it was also based on data in the US. And we can't automatically assume that what holds in the US holds around the world. But there was a paper which just came out last year, which uh, looked at more recent data and also looked at, I think, about 30 countries globally. And it found that those US results continued to hold. So in most countries, including the UK, it is indeed the case that the long-term return to share buybacks is even more positive than the short-term returns. And what's the intuition behind that? Why, why would that be the case? So that's, again, because of this um, valuation importance that we discussed right at the start. So a executive is only likely to buy back shares if she's maximizing long-term shareholder value, if she chooses to do so when the stock price is, is too low. So they're indeed market timing. So if a company has a lot of capital and indeed they know that the stock price is, is too low, then they will engage in a buyback. And therefore, that long-term return is the fact that this underpricing is being corrected over time. Okay. So then let's move on to the sort of the second challenge, which is around the crowding out of investment. So the idea here is that executives under pressure to make payouts to shareholders through share buybacks, forego profitable investment opportunities. And actually, this is one of the things that the UK government asked you and a, a team from my firm, that uh, PwC, to look at in 2017. What does the evidence say about that? Yeah, so here, um, let's let me stand in the government's corner first. And so why might you think that buybacks come at the expense of investment? So if you were to run a basic correlation, it's indeed the case that when companies invest less, they tend to buy back more shares. But as we discussed in the last episode, correlation does not imply causation, right? It could well be that the buyback caused the company to cut investment. So the idea here is that because the CEO is so hell-bent on boosting the earnings per share, she engaged in the buyback and then found that she didn't have enough cash to invest. But alternatively, it could be that low investment caused the buyback. So it could be that there are certain reasons why a company is not investing. So there's a lot of economic uncertainty, for example. And then because of that, it has some spare cash. And a responsible business should not just hoard that spare cash. It should return that to shareholders so they can invest it elsewhere. So how do we disentangle these two explanations? Well, there's two types of studies. Now, one type of study try to look at some measures for investment opportunities. So one might be the market to book ratio. So when your market to book ratio is low, 
that tends to signal poor investment opportunities. And that was also consistent with uh, buybacks being less likely to be undertaken. So that does suggest it's poor investment opportunities that cause low investment and then lead you to having cash to buy back. But those studies aren't completely conclusive because investment opportunities are notoriously really difficult to measure. So you could have a proxy like market to book, but it's not going to be perfect. So the second is you could ask the um, executives in a survey. You could ask them, do they make buyback decisions first or do they make investment decisions first? And you might think, well, that's pretty ludicrous to ask CFOs what, what they're doing because might they lie? But in fact, there was a famous study in, in 2005, which looked at both buybacks and dividends. And in that survey, the CFOs freely admitted they would cut profitable investment opportunities to maintain the dividend. So they freely admitted to value destructive behavior. But they didn't admit to that in terms of buybacks. What they said was they first made investment decisions and then undertook buybacks out of the cash left over. And that's back to the flexibility of point is that while they viewed the dividends as rigid, they viewed the buybacks as flexible. And so they would not cut investment in order to maintain a buyback. And we found something similar, didn't we, in the study that we did for the UK government a couple of years ago? That's exactly right, is that executives also responded the same, was that they viewed keeping the investment as the most important thing. Why? Because if you don't undertake a buyback in a particular year, and you did so last year, there was no stock price decline. So that same stock price punishment, which might encourage a company to maintain the dividend, even if this means scrapping investment opportunities, that is not the case for, for buybacks. But could we make a case that even if profitable investment opportunities aren't being foregone, workers' wages are being suppressed in order to fund share buybacks, which have, which have been running at record levels over the last decade or so? You know, so couldn't we argue that actually buybacks are detrimental to other stakeholders? Yeah, that could be a, a reasonable concern, because when the survey was asked, they asked the question, would you cut investment to fund a buyback? And it might be that those CFOs had a very narrow definition of investment. So they only viewed uh, investing in machines and factories as being an investment. They didn't view giving workers a pay rise or training them as a good use of capital. And that's one place where a responsible business differs from just a shareholder value maximizing business is that you would undertake investment even if you can't uh, foresee the long-term payoffs. Now, because the question was phrased in such a way that people who were cutting wages wouldn't have admitted to that in the answer because they wouldn't have caused that as investment, we can't rule that out. So I think it is indeed plausible that there are some executives out there who wrongly think that spending money on worker wages or cutting your environmental footprint more than you need to to avoid a fine is a waste of money. And it is plausible they could cut it and then they could invest the money in, in buybacks. But notice here, the problem is not the buyback per se, but actually just the narrow-minded view as to what investment includes. So if we were to ban buybacks, they would still cut all of those investments and stakeholders and just hold on to the cash, or even worse, use it to pay themselves higher salaries and bonuses. So I think that the buybacks here would only be a symptom of the underlying problem. I think the underlying problem is the pie-splitting mentality that we tackled in the first episode, not recognizing that many investments in stakeholders 
actually pay off to shareholders in the long term. Yeah, and on, on, on the face of it, any of these arguments that you, that you put for why share buybacks might be detrimental are presumably much stronger when applied to dividends, which are less flexible, because you would have thought that actually, given the penalty and share price from a company cutting their dividend, you'd have thought that the incentive to cut back on worker wages or other incentives would be even greater for high dividend paying companies than it would be for those that uh, undertake share buybacks. Absolutely. And this is what was so surprising. So at least before the pandemic, dividends never uh, got much media attention. So there was so much furor against buybacks. And indeed, in the US, you had both Republican and Democrat senators making proposals for how to restrict them. And dividends seem to be getting off scot-free, when actually the evidence suggests that buybacks are much less detrimental to investments including investment in stakeholders than dividends because of the flexibility. So I think uh, why might dividends have, have been seen to be more positive? I think it's two reasons. First was this charge that buybacks manipulate executive pay, which we haven't yet gone on to. And second, the view that dividends provide this stable income to pensioners and therefore are, are sort of good for society. We'll come back to this dividends question. But first of all, you've, you've mentioned the real sort of smoking gun that's often alleged about share buybacks, which is that they're simply used to manipulate executive pay targets. And indeed, that again was the alongside looking at whether they crowded out investment. That was the second part of what we were asked to look at for the UK government. Is there any merit in that accusation? Well, you can certainly see why that accusation uh, got so popular is it is, is due to confirmation bias. It confirms what people believe to be the case about current capitalism. So you have a CEO there who is ineffective and is just highly paid despite not being particularly talented or skilled, can't hit the targets due to normal means, so he engages in some manipulation in order to artificially boost the earnings per share, gets this big bonus, the board is just asleep at the wheel and, and not paying attention, and therefore the CEO makes off with a lot of money at the expense of everybody else. So that confirms the worst beliefs in capitalism, that it just supports the 1% at the expense of everybody else. And while that might seem a caricature, we, we do need to take it seriously, and we do need to evaluate it with evidence. We can't just assume it away prima facie. And so that's why, indeed, the UK government, to their big credit, they commissioned a systematic study, which uh, you and your PW colleagues worked on uh, with me. And so what we looked at was we took the data of the targets that CEOs had in their bonuses, and we tried to find, were there any cases in which a CEO used a buyback to hit a target that she would not have reached otherwise. And in our data set, which I think was 2007 to 2016, uh, so we had 10 years, and we looked at all companies within the FTSE 350, not a single company used uh, share buybacks to successfully hit the target. And, and why is that? Well, they're just, they were just too small in our data set to make a big difference. And, and notice right here, if there was any incentive to be biased or sort of to cook the data in a certain way, we would have, I'm not sure loved is the right word, but we would have liked to find a result finding there was significance because that would have made the study famous and we would have been uh, heralded as heroes for uncovering some malfeasance. But but that wasn't what the data showed, is, is, is unfortunately. It was just much more sober than, than that, was that they were using buybacks in what seemed to be a long-term value-maximizing way. 
And is that also borne out by U.S. studies? Because, I mean, share buybacks are more significant in the U.S. And, and as well as targets, you've got the fact that, you know, options arguably are more, you know, it's more beneficial to do a buyback than pay dividends if you have options as a large part of your compensation. So is the picture any different in the U.S.? The U.S. found uh, similar results, and, and that uh, just gives further reassurance that what we found in the U.K. was robust and rigorous. So there was a, a study which looked at what CEOs do in order to hit earnings per share thresholds. And what they found was that CEOs do cut R&D, research and development, in order to hit earnings per share targets. So, so they do take short-termist actions. So it's not that all CEOs are angelic. However, buybacks just weren't one of those actions. So they were not, um, CEOs who hit their targets were not undertaking more buybacks than those that, that are not. And so again, that suggests, yeah, there are things that a company can do to hit an earnings target, but the buyback is just too small an action to hit it compared to just scrapping a research and development project. Right. So the size of the buyback that you'd have to do to shift the dial against a target is kind of so big that it's actually easier. If you're in the game of manipulation, it's, it's easier to go for other targets than, than the share buyback. Yes, that's absolutely right. Yeah, okay. Well, what about the, you know, the current crisis and how we should think about it? Because, you know, there have been accusations that, you know, companies have had to come cap in hand to the government airlines, for example, because actually all the money that they've paid out in share buybacks over the last 10 years, you know, has, has left them in this sort of parlous, debt-ridden state. And, and as a result of this, we are seeing restrictions being placed on share buybacks for certain government support schemes. So how should we be thinking about buybacks in the context of the crisis? Doesn't the crisis show that companies have overdone it? Yes, yeah, so it certainly looks like that are ex post. So after you've seen that there was the coronavirus crisis, it does seem that these buybacks were being paid um, prematurely. But again, hindsight is always twenty twenty. So I think what's important is at the time in which the buybacks were made, um, were they a good use of cash? Did they leave the company undercapitalized? And I don't think they did because they still had significant cash buffers. Now, not significant enough to offset a pandemic, but really nobody saw the pandemic coming. So unlike the global financial crisis, where one could argue that banks were imprudent and were relying on deficient models, here I don't think anybody plausibly saw the pandemic coming. And again, recognize that, that buybacks do play an important role in society. So there are many people who believe that the airline sector should be shrinking because of the importance of combating climate change. And indeed, a buyback is a way of taking capital out of a sector that was over capacity and then redeploying it to, to other sectors. So I think at the time, it's, it's not clear that the buybacks that they were undertaking were necessarily imprudent. So I think there are two really important points I'd just like to probe into a bit more that you mentioned there, Alex. So one is this sort of idea that sometimes had that, you know, if these companies had held on to all of this cash, it could have insured them in effect against the, the impact of a pandemic. But I mean, even if you knew that pandemics were going to happen from time to time, it still may not be efficient for every company to self-insure by hoarding all of their cash you know, sufficiently to survive such a drastic event as a pandemic. So there's a sort of a, an overall efficiency argument there, which means that actually you might just decide that there has to be a role for government in, in insuring companies in those sorts of situations. And the second point was this one around 
capital reallocation and shrinkage because another argument that's often put forward is that the stock market has stopped doing its job because there is basically now no net issuance of equity in major economies because companies are buying back as many shares as are being issued. But actually, your point would be that the reallocation matters here. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? These are really important points um, because what I I really am worried about is after the pandemic, people might say, oh, companies should never be allowed to undertake buybacks again uh, because we could have another pandemic and then companies would not have enough of of a buffer. But I think that would be really bad because if indeed all companies self-insured and they held on to a lot of free cash, they would be bloated companies. And importantly, uh, there wouldn't be as much cash to fund new ventures. So how is it that the US has so many unicorns? It's because there's mature companies paying out cash and that gets invested elsewhere. So whenever a company holds on to capital, there is a big cost to that. There might not be a, a, a tangible cost, but there's an opportunity cost is that that capital cannot be reinvested elsewhere. And we certainly shouldn't move to a place in which all companies are one phrase is contented cows, where they're sitting on a lot of cash and just being overly conservative. And then the second point, Tom, you made is is absolutely spot on, because it should be the stock market, which is the vehicle through which new capital is raised. So people look at the fact that there's no net issuance, because there are buybacks, and um, there is um, IPOs, and both of those cancel each other out. So they're saying, well, as a net provider of capital, the stock market is not doing that. But that doesn't make sense, right? So a country could have a zero trade balance, but it doesn't mean it's not trading. It could just have lots of imports and lots of exports. And similarly for the stock market, yes, it's true that the amount of dividends and buybacks equals the amount raised from new equity issues, but it's not the same company, both buying back and issuing shares. There are certain companies which are engaging in a lot of buybacks, so those are mature companies. And there's other companies which are the ones which are raising capital, so those are the startups. And the advantage of making sure that companies that need capital need to go to the market in order to do that That is really beneficial because it means that the market scrutinizes them. It means that you only get capital if you are in a growing sector and there's some great opportunities there. In contrast, if every company held on to its past profits and self-insured and self-funded, then it could well be that even companies in declining sectors would still be able to keep operating. Why? Because they've got this buffer. So it's much better to pay out the cash and then for the market to decide, right now, are you a sector which is growing and which is going to contribute a lot to the economy? So just to conclude this discussion on, on share buybacks, what's your view overall? I mean, do they shrink the pie or do they contribute to growing the pie? And, and, and how do we ensure that they do? I think overall they do contribute to growing the pie because what the evidence suggests is that companies that undertake buybacks, they are outperforming not just in the short term but in the long term and they're also a good capital allocation device which does not seem to be crowding out investment. Now that doesn't mean that every single uh, company which buys back stock is doing it to create long-term value. There might be cases in which a CEO myopically fails to realize that investing in stakeholders is good for long-term value, foregoes that investment 
and buys back out of the cash left over. But again, I'd say the buyback is a symptom of the underlying problem. There, the underlying problem is having the pie splitting versus the pie growing mentality. And so that's the, what should be fixed rather than buybacks being uh, restricted. Okay. So in your book, you devote most of your time around shareholder distributions to share buybacks because of the controversial debate that there has been around them. But you've recently become much more interested in dividends and indeed have had a very entertaining uh, pair of articles in the Wall Street Journal on this topic. What was it that triggered your, your interest in dividends as a topic? So what triggered my interest was this apparent trade-off that companies have to make right now in the pandemic. So cash is really tight. They have to use that cash either to pay stakeholders in the form of worker wages, or they can use that cash to pay dividends. And I'm somebody who believes in the importance of investors. So delivering value to shareholders is something which is really important. However, um, the argument that companies need to satisfy their investors with a dividend actually doesn't hold true. So even though it's important to satisfy shareholders, ironically, the dividend isn't necessarily the best way to do that. Why? Because you might think, well, a dividend, that's just a gift to shareholders. But it's not, because when a company is paying a dividend, it's withdrawing money from it. So we know that when we go to an ATM and you withdraw cash, yes, you do get some cash in your back pocket, but similarly, your bank balance goes down, so your total wealth is unchanged. That is the same with the dividend. If you pay out a dividend, then that reduces the remaining value of the company, and therefore shareholders are not better off. So why did I end up writing these articles in the Wall Street Journal? Is that it's, it's basic finance that what matters to shareholders is the total return. It's the dividend plus the gabble gain. But for some reason, some investors were fixating too much on the dividend and ignoring the fact that dividends will come at the expense of capital gains. So what I want to do there was to write from basic finance principles and argue that it's total returns that matter. And that actually links to uh, one of the first topics that I ever did research on in my PhD, which is behavioral finance, was the irrationality that's caused by what's known as narrow framing, investors focusing too much on one source of return and not others. So it, this was not only something topical, but also linked to some research that I'd done in terms of behavioral finance. And we'll come on to some of the counter arguments that were, were raised by people that commented on your article. But th th this was very interesting because there were some pretty big investment groups that were firing warning shots across the bowels of companies around dividend cuts and, and saying that whilst, you know, on, on the one hand, investors were being very supportive of companies supporting stakeholders. On the other hand, they were saying, you know, don't use this as an excuse to cut your dividend. And by the way, if you cut your dividend, you have to cut executive bonuses as well. So there is this quite strong conviction amongst even very well-informed institutional shareholders that that the dividend matters. But, but your contention is that, that they're overstating that case. Yes, that's right. And uh, what is the fallacy here is it's one which um, two researchers, Sam Hartsmark and David Solomon, called the free 
dividends fallacy in an article they published last year, which actually won the best paper award for the best paper in the Journal of Finance, which is the uh, most prestigious journal in, in my profession. And that just documented a lot of behavior where investors were treating dividends and capital gains as separate sources of return, not realizing that one is at the expense of the other. So an example is the Investment Association, which I I really respect and has done a lot of great work in terms of repurposing the economy and focusing on stewardship. But what they said was they emphasized that, well, companies have responsibility to their investors. They include pension funds and the like. I fully agree with that. But they said, well, pension funds would suffer if you cut the dividend because they would not be able to satisfy their beneficiaries. But that argument doesn't make sense because, yes, pension funds do need to pay out to their pensioners, but they can do that by selling their shares. At any point in time, an investor can create liquidity by selling shares. And you might think, well, isn't selling shares, isn't that imprudent? Aren't you eroding capital? But you're not, because if the company didn't pay the dividend, the share price would be higher because there would be more cash left in the company. And so you'd have to sell far fewer shares in order to satisfy the liquidity need. So this is linked to a famous article in 1961 by Medigliani and Miller, which showed that dividends are irrelevant in perfect capital markets because of this equivalence between dividends and capital gains. Now, in reality, there are a number of reasons for why capital markets are not perfect, right? This theory doesn't always hold in the real world. But right now in the pandemic, I made a number of arguments for why actually this is a pretty good approximation of reality. Mm. And it's worth emphasising that you weren't arguing for why there should be no dividends. You were were arguing primarily against this sort of rigidity that we see in dividends. That's a really important point. So when we discussed on buybacks, the advantage of buybacks is that they're flexible. There is no reason for why dividends can't be flexible as well. So you could have a regime in which a company would just pay out whatever dividend it could based on first making all its profitable investment decisions and then seeing out what cash was left over and then paying it out. And that regime would, would be efficient because it would mean that a company would never have to forego a profitable investment opportunity. But instead, we're stuck in a regime where the company first has to maintain the dividend and then can only invest out of the cash left over. Now, we have what economists call an equilibrium, which is everything makes sense given how people are playing. So everybody knows that the rules of the game are such that a company shouldn't cut the dividend. And therefore, if it does cut the dividend, it must be really desperate because it knows that it shouldn't. So it does make sense for the stock market to punish a company who's cut the dividend with a lower stock price. And so everything is internally consistent. But there's no reason why that needs to be the equilibrium. We could be in a different equilibrium where companies should always make the investments first and then pay dividends out of the cash left over. And if that's the case, cutting the dividend is not a bad sign because it just suggests that you've engaged in a lot of investment. And therefore, the market doesn't punish a company that has cut the dividend. And therefore, again, everything hangs together. So what my article was advocating was moving towards that second flexible equilibrium, there would still be lots of dividends. In fact, in some cases, there might be more dividends because a company flush with cash would be able to pay out everything 
in the form of a dividend and not be worried about creating this commitment going forwards. But it's flexibility rather than rigidity. That's what I was arguing for. Mm. So, so one of the counter arguments I found most convincing was, was this point that in the same way as debt provides a monitoring a, a device on, on management to you know, stop them, in effect, frittering away capital, dividends also play a similar role, but that role only works if everybody agrees to rules of the game whereby it's very difficult to cut dividends. And then investors have a tool at their disposal that they have control over. They have control over when they release that constraint that imposes a discipline on managers not to waste capital. How would you counter that? Well, I'd first, before countering it, I'd first acknowledge it. And I think that it's, I agree with you that it's the most powerful argument against my position. Why? Because it gets to the heart of the matter. So the heart of the matter is rigidity versus flexibility. So a lot of the other counter arguments that people were making was that, oh, dividends are needed because they're income for shareholders to uh, live on and so on. But that's beside the issue because that was confusing total returns with dividends and capital gains. But this argument that you've just made, Tom, that gets to the heart of the issue because it shows that there is sometimes an advantage of rigidity over flexibility, which is that it provides discipline. Now, despite me thinking, well, this argument does make a lot of sense because it gets to the heart of the issue, I would then say maybe we we don't actually need discipline through dividends for two reasons. Is that if you wanted to pride discipline, you could do this with debt, as you suggest. So debt is even more discipline for a company than dividends. Why? Because a company could still cut the dividend. It just suffers a low stock price, but it still exists. Whereas if a company has a lot of debt, it will have to work hard and make sure it doesn't fritter away free cash in order to make the debt repayments. And debt often has this negative connotation, but there's a lot of research in in private equity by um, Steve Kaplan at Chicago and others finding that private equity does create real value by ensuring that companies make operational improvements to ensure that they can still keep paying debt. And the other advantage of debt is that it's tax uh, advantageous, is that debt is tax deductible, whereas just dividends are tax disadvantaged because for an investor, you would much rather get capital gains than dividends because there's a lower tax rate. So at its heart, do you, do you think this is a behavioural anomaly, this, um, this obsession with fixed dividends? I do, yeah. So, so what was surprising was that, like, the reactions to my article were, were quite extreme in, in in two cases. So, there's some which said, "Oh, it was a great article," but they lamented the fact that I even needed to write the article because they were saying, "Well, the point seems to be so obvious." They wish that investors would have just got it. That what matters is the total return. A higher dividend means a lower capital gain. And they were asking me, "Why is it that you think that people are confused?" And then you had other people in the extreme saying, oh, this article is the most incorrect and misguided article I've ever written, read in the Wall Street Journal. And often the furor with which people made their arguments was not backed up by any evidence. So they wouldn't give any evidence to support it. They would just say, oh, well, the only reason that you would buy a stock is to get dividends. If you're banning dividends, then no one would ever invest. But that misses two points. Number one, as you say, Tom, I wasn't saying don't pay dividends. I was saying make dividends flexible. And the other is that there's many companies that have generated huge returns for their investors like Amazon without paying dividends. So I do think it's a behavioral issue here is that because you actually receive the dividend, you fixate, you anchor on it, 
and you keep expecting the dividend going forward. Well, thanks for an, another great discussion, Alex. And to remind listeners, you can buy Alex Edmund's book and access a whole load of great related resources at growthepie.net. In the next episode, we're going to look at what Economics has to say about that most controversial topic, executive pay. So do subscribe to make sure you don't miss this and other episodes in the series. Thank you for listening. <laughs>